Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we contemplate our place in the cosmos. Well, more accurately, we contemplate how humans historically contemplated the cosmos <laughs> and our place in it, uh, because we are digging into the ancient history of astronomy. But first, before I get too excited, a thank you. Melanie! A thank you. Thank you. For joining our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. If you joined our Patreon earlier, you may have gotten our nifty 50 patron gift. And we are inching closer to that 100 patron surprise gift. And I am very excited about it. So listeners, if you want to join our Patreon at any tier, it comes along with a monthly newsletter. And depending on the tier you choose, monthly bonus episodes. And it supports the show. So, Melanie, we hope you enjoy all that bonus stuff. Yeah. Um, Anna. Yes. What is your relationship with astronomy? It's uh, an on-again, off-again relationship. Okay. When I was small, I was into astronomy because my dad was really, and still is, really into astronomy from about the age when I was about 10 onward. um, I got him a subscription to Sky and Telescope magazine as a, mm-hmm. I think, Father's Day gift. And from that point onward, there was always Sky and Telescope magazine in our bathroom for bathroom reading material. That mm-hmm. and like the Opera Monthly magazine. It's like, that should give you a pretty good idea uh, of gosh. the wild times happening over <laughs> at my household. <laughs> yeah. And um, w- when I was in elementary school at some point, I had a space themed birthday party. I remember that. Um And that's about it. I sort of got much more interested in the natural sciences and sort of things happening on this planet. Mm -hmm. And I think I get very overwhelmed when I think about space. Um, I find it really, really interesting, but I I have difficulty thinking about it. But I'm ready to think about it for a whole episode. Oh, great. Good. Um, I'm ready to think about it, too. I'm really excited that. Um, Well, you love space. I love space. It's true. I do love space. and I um, get overwhelmed by it. But um, I similarly have a dad who is very into space. Uh, My (laughs) father wanted me to be named Andromeda. Oh, what what would you shorten that? Andy? I I think Andy. Yeah. But um, he wanted he wanted me to be named Andromeda um, after the, specifically after M31, the Andromeda Galaxy, which is our galactic neighbor, uh, that you can... Oh, I'd, I'd very much like your middle name to have been M31. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um, but yeah, I wanted to be, um, when I was younger, I was very into space. I did a science project in which I did a bunch of like photos of stars and figured out their temperature 
from the color. Oh, neat. Yeah. So I did like that. Actual, I'm not like patronizing. That's really cool. Actual science. And I uh, wanted to be a cosmologist when I was young. I was, I really wanted to be like an astrophysicist. And then I was just like, what's with all the math? Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, like, since I was young, I was really interested in sort of the um, origin of the cosmos. And so this, the concepts of just sort of like unfathomable depths of time and yeah. sort of the, the comfort of how small we are. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's something that's like come through in my love of um, archaeology and anthropology of just thinking about just sort of the endlessness of, of possibilities um, and just like space, like just room that we have around us. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking and learning about space for me is the intellectual equivalent of being wrapped in a warm blanket and listening to rain on the roof with hearts of space on. Are you familiar with hearts of space? I'm not. Uh, hearts of space started in like the seventies on like KPFA in Berkeley, but it became like a national. Is this a, a talk radio no, situation? No, no talk radio. Um, it's all like new age, but like early new age. It's just like synths. It's like space music. It's like what you hear at a planetary. Oh, space music. Okay. 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 <laughs> and so um, ever since I was in the womb, my space elevator music, my parents would play Parts of space for me. It would calm me in when I was in, in tummy. Um, and so ever since then, I've been a space guy. So I'm a space <laughs> guy. Um, and I'm not alone in being a space guy. Turns out that we've been, we've always been space guys. And as the archaeological record and the researchers who tackle this subject um, make a strong case. Um, they make a strong case-ish sometimes uh, that we've been looking up at the night and drawing meaning from and projecting our imaginations onto the stars for a very, very, very long time. Before we get into that very, very long time, I have one more space thing to share that I just remembered, which is that when I was very small, uh, my dad would play make-believe with me and it still comes up, but he would pretend he'd go put on this like long trench raincoat situation and a very floppy canvas hat. There may have been other elements to the costume, but he would uh, pretend to be Zorgon from the planet Zorgon. And um, he would like come visit Earth and say, hey, and then like walk out of the room. And then my dad would mysteriously come back in like, you just missed him. Zorgon was here. That's wonderful. Yeah. We're not talking about that kind of space guy. No, no, but my dad is a, a mustachioed spaceman. So <laughs> shout out to my pops. Okay, so as we often do on the show, we're going to start chronologically and look for the earliest evidence of astronomy. So go ahead and get your pinches of salt ready. Because when you've got no living populations to ask about their concepts of the cosmos and what they think when they look up at the sky, well, there's only so far you're going to get. Although, as we will see... Some people go further. Uh, And this is where I made Anna stop writing this part of the script because I was like, no, this is a treat for you. (laughs) So Mm, we have different definitions of treat. What's coming up for Anna is... I don't know. We're going to find out together because I didn't write this part. A 2018 study entitled Decoding European Paleolithic Art, Extremely Ancient Knowledge of Procession of the Equinoxes. 
that was the title, argues that Paleolithic people had already figured out that over great lengths of time, the position of the stars shift due to precession, the wobble to Earth's rotation on on its axis. We wobble. It takes 26,000 years for the Earth to wobble back to where it started. So while the North Star is currently Polaris in the Little Dipper slash Ursa Minor, little bear, in about 12,000 years, the North Star will be Vega, which is conveniently the brightest star in the Northern Hemisphere, currently residing in Lyra. Figuring out precession is generally credited to a guy named Hipparchus, in 129 BCE, who was compiling a star catalog and went, hey, wait, when referring to a Babylonian version, because everything had moved just a bit since that Babylonian version was written. Naturally, suggesting that this was understood out tens of thousands of years earlier garnered some press, and people seemed excited by the idea that we've been astronomically inclined much earlier than anyone might have imagined possible. So, for the purposes of this study, this 2018 study, the argument is made by looking at art from several sites. Hollensteinstadel Cave in southern Germany, around 38,000 BCE. In case that name rings a bell, that's where the little lion man comes from. No, that's the art that they used. Oh, they used the lion man to suggest, oh, this is a treat for me, isn't it? (laughs) All righty. Chauvet is not in northern Spain. You know what? (laughs) (laughs) There's also data from Chauvet, which is a cave in France, dating to 33,000 BCE thereabouts. It's a painted cave, as is Lascaux. I know where it is. They've listed Chauvet Cave as in northern Spain. That is not correct. Chauvet Cave is uh, very much en France. As is Lascaux in southern France, uh, dating to around 15,000 BCE. Altamira, that one is in northern Spain, circa 15,000 BCE. Gebekli Tepe, which is in southern Turkey, circa 10,000 BCE. And Çatalhöyük, which is a site in southern Turkey dating to around 7,000 BCE. So quite the range from 38,000 to 7,000 BCE. By examining the images included in the art and interpreting each as a form of star map with a corresponding asterism. Oh, I like that word. That's asterism? fun. Isn't that a good word? Asterism. Yeah. So think about the, the pretty illustrated maps of the zodiac with the lines connecting the dots representing stars superimposed on the images. Yeah, where, like, so the, the picture. Ursa Major makes up a bear. Yeah, the drawing is... The bear, the asterism is the constellation with the dots and lines. Inside the bear. Inside the bear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The authors argue that there is a consistent zodiac of sorts developed nearly 40,000 years ago and is shared across time and geography. In two cases, Lascaux and Gebeliktepe, which we absolutely will be discussing in its own episode someday because, wow! Yep. People got takes. Uh, Oh, so many takes! Uh, And in those sites, the authors claim there is explicit reference to a damaging cosmic event originating from the same point in the sky, Taurus. And so the shaft scene, the shaft, the shaft scene in Lesko, which I have depicted here for Anna, which you see very obviously looking at it. And then there's a little rhino dead bull guy. Don't look at the rhino. The rhino doesn't have a thing to do with it. Oh, okay, I it's got the distracted bull. by the rhino. And the cosmic okay, the event bull. that caused Birdman. The guy to fall down and die. 
presumably. It looks like a bison is headbutting a man. And then below the man, there's a small bird on a stick. So this is a depiction of a damaging cosmic event because it looks like a depiction of Taurus, the bull. I understand that. Yes. I understand the relationship between bull and bison. What I don't understand is why this man has a bird on a stick and why it looks less like a damaging cosmic event and more like an event that is specifically damaging to that one man. But To me, it looks like different images that are just close to each other. Furthermore, in another article that we'll link to in the show notes, the lead author and another collaborator suggest that Gebekli Tepe is a smoking gun for a comet strike that resulted in the Younger Dryas event, which was kind of a blip in terms of climate. It was a short return to dry, cold glacial conditions about 12,900 to 11,700 years before present. So, and it's called the Younger Dryas. I feel like have we mentioned this? But it's it's based on um, a plant, mm-hmm. a flower, a pretty little white flower that shows up all over the pollen records of this particular climatic blip. So it's called the Younger Dryas. And so that supposed comet strike is memorialized on Pillar 43, the vulture stone of Gebekli Tepe. It's just, and, it, uh, it looks, so it looks like an image where you've just got like a cartoon uh, vulture like popping up from the corner being like Ooh. he also looks like he's playing beach volleyball it's like <laughs> he's doing it a little like it's like like top gun starring vultures <laughs> <laughs> i um, would watch that goose <laughs> okay stop so this, okay. this is serious this is in, i've never seen i've never seen top gun this is in line with something called the Coherent catastrophism theory, first proposed by British astronomers Victor Klube and William Napier in the early 1980s. So coherent catastrophism proposed that the bits of space dirt responsible for the torrid meteor shower are the remnants of a giant comet that cruised into the solar system sometime in the last 20 to 30,000 years. When it broke up into all the bits we still encounter today, some of it impacted with Earth to devastating ends and left a deep impact on human minds and myths. Now listen, if you're thinking this might be a stretch, don't, because the authors of the 2018 study are quite confident that they have proven these hypotheses as introvertible fact. Isn't nope. it incontrovertible? Yes! <laughs> What's an introvertible fact? It's, it's a fact that anything. like occasionally goes into a corner to hide. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I didn't have my glasses on when I wrote this. I like introvertible fact. It's like a fact that's like, oh, no, these authors are absolutely not introverts in their writing because they write, quote, Essentially, our statistical result is so strong that unless a significant flaw in our methodology is found, it would be irrational to doubt our hypothesis. It follows that any proposition about these artworks that is inconsistent with our hypothesis can automatically be rejected. It is almost certainly wrong, since our hypothesis is almost certainly correct. End quote. What a powerful statement that is. What I don't understand is what they actually did. Okay, so um, I read both of these articles, and I'm still a little. Um, can I but, can I tell you what I think happened? Yeah, tell me if I'm right. So did they? So they basically tracked what they interpreted as um, pictorial representations of this 
the, of the, these space events and did some kind of statistical study based on so what? What they one thing that they did that is quite empirical is they looked at the radiocarbon dating of the various art. Um, okay. And so they got very like like concrete dates for when those things were created. Um, they also in the Gebirkli Tepe um, article, the study that was done, they uh, proposed uh, they, they proposed a zodiac. So they proposed a series of, so the zodiac is what it actually is, is a series of asterisms that fall along the ecliptic. So that's the okay. the path of the sun through the sky. Um, right. And over so, the course of the year, right? over the course of the year. Yeah. So in the solar year. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, yep. and so they, um, what they did was um, they, they pl- basically plotted the the different animal uh, representations. Like the, well, I, there may have been human representations too, but the different yeah. figural yeah. representations on the pillars at Gebirkli Tepe against this this zodiac that roughly okay. corresponds then, to the zodiac that we have inherited. Because and they calculated some, the statistical significance of the matching, and so. I don't know about what you just said, um, but what, okay. but what there seems to be is um, looking for things happening, like in conjunction with these um, space events. Figural, no, with these figural oh, sorry, representations the, the, okay. that can be interpreted as space events. So okay. they're kind of coming from the coherent catastrophism theory they're coming at it from that because neither of these individuals one person is in um, religious studies and I think is is focused on geomyths which we'll get to in a second and the other person is an engineer Um, okay and so they aren't they they aren't necessarily specialists in um, as far as I can tell in um, astronomy or astrometry or paleolithic archaeology right Uh, but also like what I don't know how much good that does you when you have like minimal evidence and you're trying to like look into sort of symbolic thought and you're trying to see like what right. it symbolizes. So I don't know if it, that would actually do them any good. Um, so, right. and like we said, there's only so much you can access in terms of the minds of people who yeah. died hundreds of thousands of years ago. And, and it sort of seems like by coming from this coherent catastrophism theory, and maybe even judging by those last two sentences I read, uh, where they are absolutely definitely correct, there seems to be a little bit of um, a confirmation oh, yeah, bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, um, I think that there's a little bit of, um, I think there's a little bit of a lack of appreciation for how much can happen in tens of thousands of years. And so they're arguing that these things have shifted, these things have moved over the period, because that's enough time for you to see procession. Um, certainly enough right. time, because that's how long it would take. That's like halfway around. Yep. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's, it, it's an interesting thought provoking yeah, well, thing. Hang on, Anna, because we're going to keep sorry. provoking thoughts. Oh, I'm um, going to be so provoked. You're going to, yes. Uh, this is provocative um so yeah after that absolutely perfect pair of sentences um i i think i want our hypothesis is almost certainly correct and like you're irrational if you think it's like it's just like very like 
we're right. And if you think we're wrong, you're wrong. Because we're not wrong. You're wrong and also mentally ill. Like that's sort of like what. Yeah, they went hard. They went hard Um, there. Yeah. So I think I'd like to include some other comet casualty stories in this month's Dirt After Dark. Um, The dinosaurs. Because no, they don't have myths. Dinosaurs like don't have, didn't make myths. They're mything now. Oh, geez. Um, so for now, I have one more example uh, to share of of accessing ancient cosmovisions, which is definitely a term that I read in some of the stuff I read. Cosmovisions. Um, so this time it's drawing from a carved mammoth tusk excavated in 1979 at uh, Geisenklosterle Cave in Southern Germany. And the carving is estimated to be 32,000 to 38,000 years old and looks like, Anna, what's it look like? Well, it's on. It's definitely on a material that does look like mammoth tusk. And I'm not saying that to be a jerk. Like it, it's that, it's the texture of ivory. Yeah, and it the old looks, ivory. <laughs> yeah, really old, slightly splintery ivory. And it looks, it's sort of faded towards the bottom. I think it might be damaged towards the bottom, but up top, it looks like a man whose body is facing forward, but whose head is in profile, I think. Oh. And I think because okay. maybe, because it looks, well, maybe that's a dent in the eye. I don't know. Cause it looks, uh, it looks like I can see uh, like a, a sideways nose and mouth, but maybe I'm, I mean, like I said, it's a little faded. Um, and his right arm is raised and uh, maybe his left arm is also raised, hard to tell. And he's got some torso and then his legs kind of trail off. Yeah. So I mean, man. I, There's a man on that tusk. I, I see this as a person who's like sort of doing the like Rocky at the, like when he makes it to the top of the steps. Yeah. Kind of thing, arms like raised arms triumphantly ish. He is, if this is not just texture of ivory and part of the actual carving, he is quite muscular in the shoulder and bicep yeah, deltoid he's yoked, region. Indeed. He's, he's he potentially yoked. yoked. Um, yeah. So, um, so since 1979, archaeologists have kicked around some ideas for what it might represent, ranging from a little dude to a specific little dude. <laughs> and um, so the specific dude here being represent the figure that is represented in the constellation Orion, not saying that this is the hunter, but Orion. So um, the constellation Orion is visible in the Northern Hemisphere. And um, you may be familiar with it as the three bright stars in a short line with four-ish bright stars radiating out from it. Sort of like a a wonky hourglass with the four stars being the pinch part. Um, And so it gives the appearance, if you go with it, uh, and you're in like a, a dark sky of a person wearing a flashy belt. Um, with their legs apart and one arm raised above the, their head and the other one a little less raised, but there are some more stars that form a shield. I have a question and we yeah. might get to this, uh-huh. but if anyone looked at that configuration of stars, do you think they would see a person? Because when I look at that, I know it's Orion and I know what it's meant to be. And so that's what I see. Um, I think that we have evidence of other, but then again, now that I've been doing this, I don't know if I should believe any of that. Uh, sort of that there are uh, multiple multiple interpretations of that. That is something that is kind of human shaped, human figure. Okay, uh, because it is right. it is you sort of have 
belt, like three stars close together yeah. belt. And then there also is sort of the Orion Nebula and there's sort of like an open cluster, something that looks kind of fuzzy that forms like to the yeah, naked eye okay. that forms sort of the To my the sword. Eye, very, very fuzzy. My vision's very bad. <laughs> and and then you've got two stars below, two stars up. And also, okay, so it is also the two two of those stars are Betelgeuse and Rydal. And Betelgeuse and Rydal are Two of the like brightest, like yeah. most character, like one is red and one is blue, like to the naked eye. And so they look a little bit distinct. Up. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So, so like, sure, it could be. Um, like, it, sure. it's, it could have been a person. It could have been seen as a person. They thought that it could be. And then others were like, yeah, maybe not. Maybe it's just a little dude, like, whatever. Um, and so enter Michael Rappengluck. An astronomer with a particular interest in the intersection of astronomy and culture, or maybe culture and astronomy, unclear. Um, but those two tastes that taste great together. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he proposed in 2003 that maybe it is Orion. And um, he just looked a little different uh, 32,000 years ago, uh, because when the star that we see in his shoulder um, was actually in the head in that depiction of the tusk. I don't know why that figure has to represent. Why would that make a difference? But well, because it didn't, because if you're saying that these are the stars, that's not the, that's not Orion. That's not the Orion doesn't look like that. I see. And so he um, did like some uh, modeling to be like, Mm -hmm. because the stars move and we move. And so they change their position uh, relative to one another uh, from our perspective. And so he's like, oh, but 32,000 years ago, it would have looked like it would have been if we have the same little drawing up on the sky, um, it would have been in his head. Um, And so the next part is what got me. And I'm going to have to like quietly get my shoes on and start backing out of this party. Um, (laughs) Great. The opposite face of this carving so the back of the little tusk has 87 ish notches um okay and i could see why it'd be ish when it looks like that because like yeah. what's a notch and what's just a splinter uh. um so rap and gluck theorizes from a guy that from there in guys and cave thirty-two thousand years ago the brightest star in orion beetlejuice I said it three times. Um, which I know. Is, I was, I was going to make that joke, yeah. but it, I, that's why I didn't. That's why I said one of them earlier. Um, so it's very bright. It's super bright and it's reddish. And yeah. um, that's cool. Um, that's something that like, people It's notice. cool and different and would have been noticeable. To, to it is, it just is noticeable. You don't have to know anything yeah. about yeah, the yeah. stars to be like, that one looks like, red. That one's red. Yeah. And then like some yeah, even precocious I can do child that. is like, is it Mars? And it's not. Precocious child. It's not Mars. You're talking to past Amber? No, it's Amber Newmars. Oh. Um, from there, at that point, it would have dipped below the horizon for three months out of the year, which is ish eighty-seven nights. So, I see where this is going. So, this carving, referred to as a tablet, uh, would be used as something of a Paleolithic family planning calendar. Did you see where this was going? Well, no, I meant I saw. <laughs> I see where this is going in terms of depicting, like, why there. are 87 yeah yeah notches so um so yeah it's for family planning because if one were to conceive a child during beetlejuice's absence they that child would be born during winter which was quoting the science article that covered this quote a slow time for paleolithic women rather than spring to fall when migration and food gathering kept them on their feet end quote 
arguably a bad time to have a baby. I would think that the winter is like not ideal. Especially in terms everybody of that I know who's been pregnant d- in the summer, like it's not human fun. alive. <laughs> I, I imagine that pregnancy anytime is not that's particularly fun. Um, but so that's still a theory. And so that piece was published in 2003. And um, naturally, I was like, what? Tell me more. What's been going on the past almost 20 years with you, Michael Raffender? I I did some trawling of the internet for more clues about this. And I happened upon a few (laughs) blogs that discussed this hypothesis. No shade on blogs. Um, And one of these described its author, Michael Raffender, as highly respected by his peers in the field of astronomy, which I always take as a red flag. (laughs) If you have to say it. So I went on a a bit of a hunt to see what he's been up to since and to see if I could suss out how his ideas have been received by the wider community. And I found an article that he wrote that he co-authored. I think um, someone else with the surname Rappengook, maybe a spouse, um, also. Or a heck of a coincidence. On this this topic. But I found an article when I (laughs) looked up things that he's written that was called Reply to Doppler et al. Response to the fall of Phaeton. <laughs> a Greco-Roman geomyth preserves the memory of a meteorite impact in Bavaria, southeast Germany. Oh, uh, hey. So a, a, so a, a fight. Was... <laughs> There's a, a fight happening. There's a space fight. There's a fight happening in the journal Antiquity. Um, so I'm not saying that, it, that he's not, not respected. I'm just saying that he's a bit controversial. Um, he's sure. currently the vice president of the European Society for Culture... Mm, astronomy i don't know if it's an and astronomy or an and i don't know i don't remember yeah. he's done a lot of work on the concept of geomyths and so uh-huh. um that article that response that reply to the response to his article um the article was about how a meteorite struck this place in in, in what is now southern germany um, and that was memorialized in, in the, the myth, myth of Phaeton. Who you want to tell people who Phaeton was? I can. I know this one. Phaeton was a son of Apollo. He's a demigod, and so Apollo, um, or I guess Helios, depending on whether whether you're feeling Greek or Roman. But um, Apollo went, "My son, make any request of me that you wish." And Phaeton was a teen, and he was like, "Dad, I want the car keys." Uh, I want to drive your chariot across the sky, which was the interpretation of of Apollo slash Helios being the sun god, moving the sun across the sky in his chariot. Uh, And Apollo was like, oh, that's a bad idea. But I did say you could ask for anything. And so he let Phaeton drive the chariot and predictably it did not go well. And Phaeton crashed the chariot into the earth Apparently that happened in what is today Southern Germany. And, mm-hmm. and that's that creator, that create creator, that crater created <laughs> a uh, lake. And so that's that they were arguing that this was a geomyth. And then Doppler at all was like, no, it's not. But it's like, basically, like, I, th- I think that that lake was formed by like the ice age, like ice age, like glacial movement. And then uh. there was a response. So like, eh. uh, so let me be absolutely clear. We are not saying that Paleolithic people were not capable of recognizing patterns of movement among the stars or even able to connect those patterns to aspects of their lives on Earth or tie it to sort of tradition or myth. Um, We're just saying that maybe this evidence isn't the evidence you think it is. Yeah. Um, But this is 
but it is something that brings to mind the fact that like we've been here for so long that like the stars have changed um wild that's, that's beautiful and incredible to me um and yet we've not been here long at all I know. Imagine how much the stars have changed. I know. Well, and one thing that this discussion of the movement of the stars across the depths of time reminds me of is, well, firstly, my favorite episode of like the the new iterations of Doctor Who. I don't have many favorite episodes from that. Um, But there's one in which there is like, um, he realizes. What? Which doctor? Who plays him? Peter Capaldi. Thank you. So my... Favorite I just wanted new, to picture my, someone. My favorite of the new doctors, because he is like the most asexual of them and also the hottest. And so that's what, that's, that's sure. what works for me. Um, but he, he's in this point where he is like sort of repeating things over and over and he realizes. Oh, a time loop. Oh no. Figures out. No, it's not a time loop. Like oh. his actions are in the loop and he figures out that there are thousands and uh, millions of years have passed because the stars are changing ah. um, over time. And it's like, it's a very, like, I found it to be a very evocative moment. But also, it reminds me of this uh, thing, this, this the work of Martin Varjic, whose work is, is described in a Wired article that I'll link to. And he makes gifs of how constellations that we know might have transformed between 50,000 BCE to 100,000 CE. And just to watch Very them cool. sort of come together and then come apart. And um, oh, that's so neat! It's a really, it's really beautiful. So go check that out because we're we'll going to go take it. a break. And when we come back, we'll shift gears a little bit. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks for that, buddy. I feel pleasantly lightheaded and not nearly as enraged as I thought I might be. (laughs) So far, so good. Let's head somewhere else now, somewhere geographically southerly and chronologically olderly, yeah. Australia. We're, we're in Australia. This, this story comes from the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation Company, conglomerate. And I'm going to quote it for the specific language it uses because it brings up something I want to address. So much for not being enraged. <laughs> I'm really quoting. excited that I'm not the one that made you mad with my script. No, it wasn't you this time. <laughs> I did it on my own. <laughs> Quote, 
An ancient Aboriginal site at a secret location in the Victorian bush could be the oldest astronomical observatory in the world, predating Stonehenge and even the Great Pyramids of Giza. Scientists studying the stone arrangement say it could date back more than 11,000 years and provide clues into the origins of agriculture. Dwayne Hamaker, a leader in the study of indigenous astronomy, has been working with Aboriginal elders at the site to reconstruct their knowledge of the stars and planets. And Dr. Hamaker says, quote, Some academics have referred to this stone arrangement here as Australia's version of Stonehenge. I think the question we might have to ask is, is Stonehenge Britain's version of the Australian arrangement? Because this could be much, much older. So first... Now, that was the end of the quote. So first, I want to get into what the site looks like and why it's connected to agriculture. The comparison to Stonehenge is misleading in a few ways, so put a pin in that. But in terms of conjuring a mental image, if you hear Stonehenge, you're likely thinking about some kind of massive, very visible arrangement of standing stones rising up from the landscape. That's not at all what this is. The researchers working at this site are referring to it as an observatory, and that term makes a lot more sense. It's a long, snaking line of stones, not large ones. In fact, they're a bit hidden under the grass of the field they're in. In the pictures I saw, there's not a lot of visual cues for scale. It's like a huge open field with no points of reference. But if I think if I were standing next to these stones, most of them would come up to maybe my shins. So they're, they're low to the ground. And the stones have definitely been deliberately placed in their current arrangement. They're all lined up, and the arrangement itself is too low to have been any sort of wall, so we can rule that out. But based on observations of the rock placement, researchers suggest that the line of stones was built to track the movement of the sun throughout the year. This means a couple of things. One, which is kind of obvious, the path of the sun and predicting it or having some record of it was important to the people who lived here. The second thing is that this is likely a place where people were living at least most of the year. If you're going to spend time tracking the sun and marking its path in a single place, it's likely that you're staying in that place. The observatory isn't the only thing in that secret location in the Victorian bush. There seem to be traces of living spaces and evidence of early fishing and farming practices. And this is evidence for a way of life that's really different from the traditional understanding of Australian aboriginals as only nomadic hunter-gatherers. Whoever was living here, they were at least semi-sedentary, and they were managing their resources with things like eel traps, sorry bud, and terraced farming fields. The evidence for this is really, really cool because it indicates a move towards agricultural behavior, A, in a place where there wasn't really thought to be any, and B, roughly around the same time that the same processes were happening among other hu human populations in totally different parts of the world that at this time weren't connected at all. So very cool. And, and that's why this site is so cool and why comparing it to Stonehenge does it a disservice and is frankly lazy because everything in archaeology that has anything remotely to do with an arrangement of stones or wood or other stuff that seems to track solar or other celestial movements gets compared to Stonehenge in the media. Is Stonehenge cool? Yeah. Definitely. It's very cool. It's also cemented in the public consciousness, at least the consciousness informed by a Western slash European background as the thing with stones that is related to this guy. Everyone can pull up a mental image of Stonehenge, but I think that's really limiting. And it shows that if the media is comparing a site like this Australian one to Stonehenge, they haven't fully understood the importance of the Australian site. So 
I have another example to bolster my radical new movement to not invoke Stonehenge every time there's a pile of rocks in a shape. And also a shameless plug for some of my non-podcasting work. Since in this hemisphere, we're just passing the summer solstice, I wrote a piece for Sapiens about solstice sites that aren't Stonehenge. It's a listicle. I'm a, Amber's a space guy. I'm a listicle guy now. But go check it out at sapiens.org if you're interested. We'll link to it in the show notes. And you might learn about some sites you didn't know existed, like the one we're going to talk about now. That is a site called Nabta Playa, and disappointingly, and yet oh so predictably, its coverage in the media pretty much all sounds like this headline from Discover Magazine. Nabta Playa, the world's first astronomical site, was built in Africa and is older than Stonehenge. So, we're in Africa's Nubian Desert, about 800 kilometers south of modern Cairo, because the rest of what's around is desert. And Cairo is like the nearest mm. big location for reference. Um, and so that might seem like the desolate middle of nowhere now. No, nah, it's not. Thousands, it's not. No, it's super not. It, I, <laughs> I didn't, I'm not saying it is. I don't know. I just like, I'm sorry. I just like burst in like the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh yeah. But it's not desolate. It's just, Okay. It's just sandy. It's just hot. It's just sandy and hot. Yep. But thousands of years ago, this was a greener area. And the people who lived here, because people did, and still do, likely had a lifestyle of nomadic pastoralism, seasonally traveling with their herds of cattle to different pastures. And one of those pastures was Nabta Playa. The site was inhabited around the 10th to the 8th millennium BCE, and the people living there consumed and stored wild sorghum, and they used ceramics adorned by complicated painted patterns, and these ceramics belong to a general pottery tradition strongly associated with the southern parts of the Sahara. So now I'm going to, even though I threw it under the bus, I'm going to quote now from that Discover Magazine article, which is by Eric Betts, and was published in June 2020. Quote, In the 1960s, Egypt was planning a major dam project along the Nile River that was going to flood important ancient archaeological sites. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, you know it, you love it, it's UNESCO, stepped in with funding to help relocate famous structures, as well as scour the area for new sites before they were lost forever. But a prominent American archaeologist named Fred Wendorf saw another opportunity. He wanted to search for the ancient origins of Pharaonic Egypt, away from the Nile River. By luck, in 1973, a Bedouin or nomadic Arab guide named Eid Marif came across a group of what looked like large stone megaliths while crossing the Sahara. Large stone megaliths is the most repetitive tautology. (laughs) A megalith is a large stone. Mm -hmm. So Marif took Wendorf to the site. And at first, Wendorf thought that these were natural formations, but he soon realized that the site was once a large lake bed that would have destroyed any such rocks, and he would return many times over the course of decades. Then, during excavations in the early 1990s, Wendorf and a team of excavators, including Polish archaeologist Romuald Schild, Romuald, Romuald, hitting them all, uncovered a circle of stones that seemed to be aligned with the stars. In a paper published, and here's another 
academic fight. In a paper published in the journal Mediterranean Archaeology and Archaeometry, astrophysicist Thomas G. Brophy suggests the hypothesis that the southerly line of three stones inside the what they're calling the calendar circle, that's the megaliths, represented the three stars of Orion's belt. Ah! And the other three stones inside the calendar circle represented the shoulders and head stars of Orion as they appeared in the sky. He suggested that the stones at Nabdaplaya were a map of the Milky Way as it had appeared in the sky at the time the stones were placed. A later team disagreed and, and wrote, they did write an article that was like a response to Brophy. <laughs> and they proposed an alignment with Sirius, the dog star, mm-hmm. instead. And there's still a bit of ongoing disagreement or dialogue, whatever you want to call it. A team led by Wendorf, the archaeologist who first excavated the site, and a guy named J. McKim Malville, an expert in astronomical archaeology of the American Southwest, suggested that the area was first used as what they call a regional ceremonial center around 6100 BCE to 5600 BCE, with people coming from various locations to gather on the dunes surrounding the playa. There's evidence there for gatherings which involved the sacrifice of large numbers of cattle. Around 5500 BCE, a new, more organized group began to use the site, burying cattle in clay-lined chambers and building other tumuli, so mounds, and maybe carving a large rock into the shape of the cow of a cow. So, um, well, cattle cult question mark because I've included a picture here for you, Amber, from this Discover article of what is captioned as lifting the stone carved in the shape of a cow out of the excavation. And um, it looks to me like a stone in the shape of a stone. Yeah, it does. It's pretty stone shaped. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, Maybe I'm not seeing the right side. Yeah. But you got me. I don't, I don't see the cow, but it is big. It's the size of a cow. Certainly. This, this one guy in the windbreaker doesn't seem to be seeing the cow either. Yeah. He looks huh. very grumpy. <laughs> Around 4800 BCE, a stone circle was constructed with narrow slabs approximately aligned with the summer solstice near the beginning of the rainy season. This is the feature that Wendorf and his guide first saw, and the part of the site that gets compared to Stonehenge, because the stones are vertical. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty and in a circle. That's it. But but that distracts from the importance of the Naptaplaya standing stones. So as as I said before, when people were living here, things were a bit wetter and greener. Practically speaking, the megaliths would have helped the people of Naptaplaya track the rainy season, which only became more important as society developed over thousands of years. The summer solstice would have coincided in this place with the arrival of the annual monsoons, so tracking the sun's location could have tipped them off to the coming wet season, meaning that they could plan their harvests, move their cattle where they needed to, and generally not be caught unawares by the changing seasons. So thank you for coming to my... TED Talk slash rant. And I hope that the next time you see a site compared to Stonehenge in the media, you take a moment to mentally uncouple that site with Stonehenge and consider it for what it really is. Ah, thank you. Oh, that was so great. Um, oh, thank you. Ah, I'm having so much fun here. I hope you're having fun, listeners. Um, so, Annie Anna, I hope you're having fun. Um, so, every, <laughs> everything we've talked about so far is just like super prehistoric. Um, although, in the case of the Aboriginal Australian in the case of Aboriginal Australian cosmologies, sometimes we can access the deep past through oral tradition. As for getting a little bit of that context, let's move on to historic 
ancient astronomy. To start off, we got to talk about the earliest written examples of astronomical science from Mesopotamia. There, there's a lot of discussion around earlier evidence for astronomical science, um, like from from China, from caves in Europe, uh, from like from different places in the world. But I'm talking about writing. Um, okay. And I just want to make sure that that distinction is is clear that you yep. can, there are ways to record things down. that aren't written. But um, for about 15 minutes in my extremely short-lived Assyriological career, I thought maybe Babylonian astronomy was my bag. Um, and I was devastated to learn that not only was it all cuneiform, which was already enough of a problem for me um, in my short-lived Assyriological career, um, but also, you want, also once you got past all the cuneiform, it was like basically all math. And um, oh, a double blow. <laughs> and I was um, reminded of an experience I had. One of the like, mm, 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 chef's, chef's kiss. Um, one of my professors, who is a genius, like a MacArthur the genius. The MacArthur variety. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Chessie Rochberg. Um, she works on, she has worked on uh, Babylonian astronomy and sort of the history of science. And she invited someone who came and gave a lecture on Babylonian astronomy. And it was dense. And so he he gives his talk and it's like, okay, cool. We're okay, cool. And at the end, um, Chessie says like, oh, thank you so much. That was great. Does anybody have any questions? And a couple people raised their hand, but she calls on um, hand raised by <laughs> the chair of <laughs> the chair of the department, who is a great dude, super smart, great Assyriologist, Meek, um, who says, thank you for that talk. I think I speak for most people here when I say, I have no idea what you were saying. Wow. <laughs> and it's also just like this, like kind of like kooky Dutch guy, just like very friendly being like, I have no idea what was going on um, because it was all math. It was just like all math. And mm. And he was like, mm -hmm. I got nothing. Um, and I like felt so seen because I had no idea what he was talking about. So I was reminded of this experience while reading an article <laughs> that I'll include in our show notes um, entitled oh, no. 3000 Years of Sexagesimal Numbers in Mesopotamian Mathematical Texts, published in the Archive for History of the Exact Sciences by uh, Joran Freiberg. Um, you can read that if you like. Um, but for our purposes today, I will just tell you that there's evidence oh, for that sexagesimal number systems, so meaning a base of 60, existed prior to the development of cuneiform writing. 60 may seem like a random number in our world of base 10 counting. I was like, do we use base 10? So I Googled it and then I got a bunch of links for um, worksheets for first grade math. <laughs> I was just like, Ooh, ouch. Ouch. <laughs> Um, but the, but there's the hand thing. So you can count to I 60 fingies. on your hand, because if you, don't act like you knew this. Like, no, I did. I thought you were going to say that that's why we have base 10. I was like, I have 10 fingies. Yeah. Okay. I great. can count yeah. to 10. So it, we, yeah, you think base 10, because we got most people, I, I would think most that. people have five fingers on one hand, five fingers on the other. You count to 10, but you can count to 60 on one hand because what you do is you go, you touch your thumb to each bone 
of your fingers. And you say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, oh. eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. So you can count to 12 on one hand. Now, if you count each finger and do you that go, for each you number, do that for yeah. each, each of your five digits, you can and count to 60, five is 60, which there are um, some societies that still count like that. And there are some traditional societies that use sexagesimal counting because of the three bones per digit, well, that's five so digits per hand counting, which blew my mind. Yeah. Um, but that's not, <laughs> but that's not how it worked in, with Babylonian numbers. Um, they were, I mean, they did have the same number of fingers. They, oh, okay. <laughs> So rather than five groups of 12, which is how like traditional sexagesimal counting systems work, um, they were divided into six groups of 10. Best Um, of both worlds, I guess. Yeah. Sure. I don't know. Again, 15 minutes. (laughs) It's like all it said for me to be like, nope. Um, So we still use sexagesimal number systems when we measure time, do trigonometry, Mm -hmm. or navigate among exact positions on earth. Um, That I did know. And that does come ultimately from... Mesopotamian math. Yeah. Um, so math and astronomy were closely connected. And by mastering the number, Babylonian astronomers were able to understand the behavior of celestial bodies and apply that knowledge to life here on Earth. Amazing. Yeah. So um, uh, Cambridge University has a program called Enrich. Um, <laughs> you, know, you pronounce the, the letter Enrich. <laughs> So it's something that their faculty of mathematics does. It's a program for public resources for kids three to 18, or in my case, 33, to learn about yep. math. Um, and, and so by 750 BCE, astronomers had a reasonably accurate means of measuring the elevation or latitude and lateral direction, longitude of objects in the heavens. So they knew where stuff was and they could record it. So they, and they observed the heck out of it. Um, and so why did they, uh, well, um, so they, they made tables of positions of objects in the sky at any given time of year. And these tables are called, um, ephemerides, which is just the Greek word for uh, diary. So it's like a daily, oh. a daily record. Okay. Thank Ephemera, you. day, ephemerides, yep. ephemerides, days. Yep. And so this was all like observational techniques. So they were just like looking and thinking and doing math on their little tablets. Um, and they were little. I'm not being pejorative. <laughs> Itty bitty tablets. Um, they right, using observational that way. Yeah. The, um, so they used observational techniques like heliacal rising, which occurs when a planet, star, or other body first becomes visible above the eastern horizon at dawn. And so by measuring that, by observing that and recording it, they were able to figure out that the constellations of the Zodiac um, moved a complete circle through the sky once a year. That's so they figured out that the Zodiac is on the ecliptic. So their year was already determined by the sun, right? So it's a solar year. So they're looking at a solar year. I don't know if, yeah. So like, did the year come first or did the observations come first? um, Is what I, I there's no way for you to know. There also, there's also, there's the solar year and the sidereal year. What's and, the sidereal year? <laughs> um, well, there's the sidereal month. So one is the solar year is the Earth moving around the sun. Yep, got that and one. And the sidereal sidereal time is measured with objects moving relative against a backdrop of the stars. So okay. that's like a lunar 
So it's a lunar calendar. So you can okay. have different, time is measured differently for different reasons and years mm-hmm. are different mm-hmm. for different reasons. You know, we see that today with the, the Hydra calendar is a lunar calendar, the traditional mm-hmm. Chinese calendar, lunar, lots of lunar calendars, solar calendars. Yep, the, the Jewish one. Yep. Um, I couldn't remember the name of it. So I just went with Hydra. So just Jewish. Yep. yep. Just, just uh, not a, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, so the sun's apparent movement daily across the sky formed one 360th of a circle, hey. out a circle. Um, yep. so the moon, the moon moved through about 13, 360ths of a circle each day. Also Babylonians figured out fractions, which uh. is like horrible cuneiform to look at like there's a I could, oh, I maybe bet. i'll take it up and show you there's a tablet that shows sort no. of like an irrational number it shows like the square root of two and i'm just like i don't want it um no. and so the ecliptic was inclined to the horizon about 23 and a half degrees that's the our tilt the that's angle the, of the earth relative to the way the sun hits it yeah so the t- so that's why when you yeah. move around we move around like tilt yeah we wobble um so planets go against the stars in the background so yep and then sometimes they move backwards that's retrograde um oh as in mercury in yeah that's that's what that is where it, like as they move against the stars it starts to look like they're moving backwards um, mm-hmm. Because of the way that the way that everything is moving, it gives that a, right. a, a appearance. So exactly. that's what retrograde yeah. is. Um, okay, great. So from from all of these observations, they were able to uh, predict eclipses of the moon and sun, and they could observe eclipse uh, transits of planets. So the transit when something goes in front of the sun, and occultations yep. where mm. the moon goes in front of different stars. Um, Mm -hmm. So they could observe all that. And so all of that stuff was recorded for generations and used as something that you could do divination from. Mm -hmm. And so all of that was recorded in a series of tablets, in 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 like 27, 28 tablets in what's known as the Enuma Anu Enlil. Um, And so that's just the first line of it is just means when Anu and Enlil. Like those are two gods. And so I will include in the show notes if you want to see some examples. So what they would do is the king would be like, what do I do? And so they'd go, oh, let's go look. And so they're like, okay, we looked at this. And um, they basically did a, a horoscope reading, like they, sort of. It's not, not really. It's not really a horoscope reading because you look, you look at the, you observe what's happening and then you look it up in like the encyclopedia oh, a, of things. And so, okay, so here's, a, here's there's an a, example from an article by Neek. <laughs> Oh, looking hey. at this. Um, so saying, if Nibiru drags, watch out, Nibiru, the gods will get angry. Righteousness will be put to shame. Bright things will become dull. Clear things confused. Rain and floods will cease. Grass will be beaten down. All the countries will be thrown into confusion. The gods will not listen to prayers, nor will they accept supplications, nor will they answer the queries of the heresies, the people that... The, the diviners that, that look at like organs yeah. of uh, sacrificial animals. This interpretation I have extracted and sent to the king, my lord, exactly as it was written on the tablet. So it's sort of like a don't, don't shoot the messenger. The, yeah, <laughs> like, it's on the it tablet. Says. So that's and so that's what they did. So all of that stuff, it wasn't wow. just like sort of scientific so inquiry, but it was useful for figuring out for advising the king and figuring yeah, out what to like do on like auspicious times yeah. or or understanding wow right oh, that's so neat so cool that's really it's neat. a shame about all that math for me it's just too bad it's just too bad yeah and it's also a shame that the babylonians kind of don't get more credit because you know we should talk about the 
you talk about the transit of Venus and you talk about the discoveries of latitude and longitude, like all of that, a lot of the historical records of that are like, oh, Captain James Cook, transit of Venus and whatever. Yeah. And like, there's a small part of me that's like, I get it. Cuneiform's hard. But also that stuff was like not found (laughs) yet. Yeah. No, I, the information was missing. And so it had to be done again. What I'm saying is it's a shame that there was no continuity that allowed us to continue understanding how space worked for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, moving on to a slightly different part of the world, just a little bit east. Just slightly. Ever so slightly. Just a scotch. In our episode on the Indus Valley civilization, here there be unicorns, we talked about architecture, script, and unicorns, but we made no mention of astronomy. And we should have, because research into Vedic texts suggests that by around 1900 BCE, people had figured out the periods of the visible planets, Venus, Mars, and Mercury. Quick clarification. The Vedic texts just say that that had happened by then, not saying that Indus Valley script was... Can't read it. Can't read it. So we don't know. They may talk about it. Yeah. But just just say. The Vedic texts are in Sanskrit, which we can read. Not not Amber and I specifically. Yep. People can read. Not me. Uh, so they figured out the uh, period, so the, the time it takes for them to go from one side of the horizon to the other and come back around again. They figured that out for Venus, Mars, and Mercury, as well as the movements of the sun and moon. And so these observations were translated into descriptions of various gods striding across the heavens. And so astronomical phenomena, again were cast in terms of mythology and cosmology. All of this comes from the Vedanga Jyostisha, a Sanskrit text, and one of the six Vedangas, or limbs of the Veda. So basically disciplines, like the way that things are kind of um, sectioned off in the humanities, more like that general term. So the Vedangas include phonetics and pronunciation, grammar, poetry, etymology, ritual instruction, and astronomy slash astrology. And I've combined those last two because in Vedic tradition, they're inextricable. One is equivalent to the other because much like in the Babylonian world, um, the the stars and the movements of planets and, and other celestial bodies relative to one another help to kind of determine various parts of, of everyday life. So that astronomical text is attributed to an author named Lagada and has an internal date. So it, it quotes itself of approximately 1350 BCE. The, the internal date means that the text mentions details of a particular winter, winter solstice and the astronomical conditions or, or observations from that solstice. And that's been used to calculate when it was actually written. So for the purposes of this text, time is divided into a unit called a yuga. According to the Vedanga, in a yuga, there are five solar years, 67 lunar cycles, and 1,768 risings of the moon. It also provides rules to determine the positions of the sun and moon at any time. A lunar month is divided into 30 titis. The solar day is divided into 124 parts and also into 603 kalas. And so you can you can have a day divided into various portions. Uh, the measurement of time was taken by the use of a clepsydra, which is the the name directly translates to water thief, and it's a water clock. 
So it's mm-hmm. um, you have a specifically sized opening from which water runs from one container to another, and then is that specific amount of time that it takes for amount A to run into container B. So that's uh, the unit of time. And so that unit of time that the clepsydra measures was called anadika, which was one sixtieth of a day. So it's sort of a base 60 system, but not really because there's lots of other denominators as well. The units were chosen though, to allow for the use of integers in various calculations. So no fractions, yay, Mm. easier math. And so I'm going to quote from an article on indicportal.org. Quote, the Indic approach to discovery quite naturally arises from Urta, the cosmic order that is an expression of Satya, the ultimate reality. This cosmic order is experienced at every level, from the microcosm to macrocosm. Time is sacred in this cosmology, and we have the Kala Chakra representing cyclic time. And it is intuitive that elapsed time can be tracked using precisely recurring rhythms of different durations that abound in nature. So cyclical things that can be counted and relied upon to repeat themselves year after year or time unit after time unit to make me sound like a total robot. One time unit is a way to keep track of all kinds of things. The Vedic people knew about the solstices and employed a six season calendar, which is special to India because it includes a rainy season. Um, Not all places in the world have monsoon and not monsoon season. Yeah. So obviously the ability to accurately predict the arrival date of monsoons has always had significant economic value in India. Yep. (laughs) The 12 tropical months along with their seasons in the Yajurveda are spring, summer, rainy, autumn, winter, and freezing. So those are the seasons. Yeah. So we've got what? Six seasons. Yeah. Two of each. Two months in each season. Mm-hmm. So people in the South Asian subcontinent were in contact with people in Mesopotamia. And so yeah. eventually these two traditions kind of ran up against each other. Yeah. So um, Mesopotamia was eventually conquered by the Hellenistic, by, by, by the Alexander. And so you've got sort of the Hellenistic tradition that brings the Greek and sort of subsumes the, what they refer to as Chaldean, which is just another Babylonia, basically. And so you have this sort of astronomical science. And then as the relationship developed with uh, South Asia, you have people in South Asia who have a lot of complex math being like, hey, you got astronomical science in my complex math. And they said, you got complex math in my astronomical science. And so to get together, like, it Delicious. really advanced astronomical science. And, and so it was like they were sort of doing their own thing because they were more focused on um, astrology and then math. Um, and then these other sciences came in to develop new sciences that ended up in dialogue across regions. Um, and Neat. it's a huge shame that we don't have days and days to talk about all this stuff because there's so much to talk about. Um, but we need to take another break. And then we come back. I will have one more place that I'm going to tell you about. And then I'll leave you alone. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. 
So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Okay, we're back. Hi. Hello. I'm um, still here. You're still here. Oh, thanks. It's great to have you. And so we've got one more place to talk about, which um, unfortunately for our balanced earth um, is not in North or South America. <laughs> um, yeah. But which it is China. China has a very long history of astronomical science, and we easily could have spent this entire hour plus uh, yep. talking about uh, and 11 minutes so far <laughs> great it's actually shorter than i thought it would be um, talking about astronomy in ancient china so i want to but but since we just got a few more minutes here together i want to touch on just a few things beginning with one of the most lovely translated phrases i've heard in a long time which is guest stars not which, the kind like, we sometimes have on this podcast no. no. Uh, so Chinese astronomers knew the usual roster of stars quite well, as we'll see. And Gan De and Shi Shen are credited as the comprehensive catalogers of the night sky, who the, the first ones to do this in the fourth century BCE. Although, unfortunately, no copies of their work survive. How do we know they did they it? They are cited elsewhere. Ah, because um, there seems to be a strong tradition of building on the work of your foreparents. Um, and a Buddhist monk named Yi Jing conducted an astronomical survey in the 8th century CE to help with the prediction of solar eclipses. They certainly knew what was up, so they being sort of astronomers in China. And when yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. new appeared in the sky, that was a big deal. It was definitely a known thing, which is what we would call supernovae today. So mm. um, for those of you who um, aren't space guys, or a supernova is when a certain categories of star will explode when they're dying. And it's so a, it's a point in the star's uh, like life cycle, right? When they die. Yeah, well, yeah, it is a point. The end yeah. point. It's the end point of the star. Um, <laughs> so depending, so some, it depends on how big they are, how hot they are, and like what their composition is. Some stars burn out, some stars fade away, as the song says. Um, <laughs> and some explode. And so you have this, this bright explosion, and then what remains um, dissipates into just sort of like gas and dust, like supercharged gas and dust that becomes mm -hmm. a nebula. So... Um, in 1054 CE, there was a guest star that was unlike the others, and it was big. So <laughs> the star shone roughly four times brighter than Venus, and it was visible in daylight for 23 days. Oh, that is very bright. Gosh. That's, um, that's a enormous magnitude. Um, and so it remained visible in the night sky for 653 days. So for two years there, two years, there yeah. was... A random a new star that was new. super bright. 
And um, so you can still see what's left of that guest star. It's now M1, so Messier Object 1 in the catalog. The Crab Nebula, and it's in the constellation Taurus, once again. Bringing it back around. It came from Taurus. You would need really good binoculars or a telescope because it has a magnitude of about 8, 8.3, I think. And you can't just squint. Well, no, no, not with... um, not with like normal human. If you have sort of standard, like healthy human vision, you can, if you have, you can see to about six, magnitude okay. of six. And so okay. a magnitude of one is the brightness of Vega because Vega is the brightest star. Okay. In, so very, um, very visible. And, and so, so it is extremely bright. And so you compare everything to Vega. And so if it's brighter than Vega, it's, it becomes a negative magnitude. Mm, okay. Um, and so it's about an 8.5. So you can see it if you have uh, binoculars or a magnifying glass. It's just like a little fuzzy green smudge in the sky. That's what you see it. But it's oh. awesome. Astronomers were concerned with what happened in the sky because like the Mesopotamians and like folks in the um, Indian subcontinent, knowing what happens in the heavens can help you determine a course of action on Earth. All the things that have been recorded assiduously for millennia, so sunspots, solar eclipses, guest stars, uh, like sunspots. Amazing. Um, all of these Scary. are, yeah, right. Mm. Yeah. Um, all of these are meaning laden for the people responsible for advising Kings and emperors. And the same goes for comets again with the comets. I mean, it's moving and it's bright and it's, it's scary. I get it. It's or just like, like seems to have great import, you know, or it smacks into the earth. Did you forget that? Or part? that. Well, no, I'm gonna I I'm gonna start. Try not to think. I'm gonna about save this for possibility. My, I'm gonna save that for my spinoff podcast called Comet as You See Fit, and um, <laughs> great. So I'm gonna talk about one comet that folks may have heard of, um, and depending on how old our listeners are, you may have seen. So Halley's Comet is the most famous comet because it's the only one visible to the naked eye and swings around every 75.32 years. So it's possible to see it twice in one's lifetime. It's the only one that that's the case for. Not mine, unless I live to 152, because the last time it was it came through was 1986. So yep. on what our calendar would translate to, um, March 30th, 239 BCE, a sighting of Halley's Comet was recorded in the Shi Chi and Wen Xian Thung Kao Chronicles. And so in the intervening 2,260 years, every return of Halley's Comet has been recorded in China. Um, Cool. And so not all comets are like our friend, Comet Halley, who swings by every so often. Um, Hi. And so the ones that just like show up and then we never see again because they've got a period of city of like 20,000 years or something. Like, yeah those were even more meaningful for the purposes of divination. And so there is a text called the Silk Atlas of Comets, um, which was written on silk. And um, the, I was going to ask the extant copy, the copy that we have was excavated from the tomb of Li Shi in, um, I don't remember where Um, it's in the Hunan museum now. So I think near Hunan uh, in Hunan province, somewhere in Hunan province. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, it's called, its full name is Divination by Astrological and Meteorological Phenomena, um, and it dates to the early Western Han Dynasty, somewhere between 206 and 168 BCE. 
And it concerns divination through the interpretation of astrological and meteorological phenomena. Um, And I have an excerpt of it, like a close up here of part of it for Anna to see. Um, And so there are about, so it's highly illustrated. It's like a reference guide. Um, And there's about 250 images of various celestial phenomena, including clouds, gases, stars, and comets. And so it's, it's red and black and each of them has captions explaining. Um, Sure. Wish I could read Chinese characters. Yeah. And so um, each of them. And, and so if you've got, I think there's like 20 some, I like in the show notes, I have a link to an image of that, that section. So the first half of the, the first part of the, um, the text is uh, about sort of meteorological stuff and like doing divination from that and then the second half Mm -hmm. is stuff in the sky a lot of which is comets so this isn't just this is incredible because you don't see 20 some comets in the sky like in the course of your career Um, this is like hundreds of years of comets that they have recorded and there are notes about how each of them look different the tails like operate differently they're different lengths and also all of them have the tails pointing in the same direction because the tail always faces away from the sun. It's really, it's really impressive. Like it's, it's just, it's just really impressive that you have this like solid body of knowledge that has passed through the ages. And this Amazing. is something that uh, someone would refer to it, that where the, that's in like an advisor role to yeah. the, the a decision needs to be made. Let's check the yeah. comment book. Yeah. And so finally, the oldest actual star atlas that we found, remember I talked about the, the, the ones that were written earlier that are referenced, but that don't survive. The one where there's an actual extant copy. Yeah. And so that comes from, uh, that was excavated in Dunhuang um, and it's known as the Dunhuang Star Atlas. And it probably dates to around 700 CE. So it shows a complete representation of the Chinese sky in 13 charts with over 1300 stars named and presented accurate to what the sky looks like. So go to the show notes and check out the International Dunhuang Project for more information about the Dunhuang Star Atlas, as well as the history of Chinese astronomy more generally. It's really great. Um, And it's not treated like this one's shaped like a crab. This one's a bull. It's just the actual stars there they are stars and there are asterisms to help you locate it um mm-hmm. and they're also like descriptions of those stars and there seems to be like a fair amount of like relative magnitude and things like that to sort of oh, figure out so your neat. way around the sky so um the atlas itself is the second part of a larger scroll a, a, which is is on very fine paper and 13 separate panels so the first part is um divination based on the shape of clouds quick and dirty treatise on cloud divination <laughs> and then there's 12 there's 12 panels showing um different sections of the sky and um, the stars are named there's exploratory explanatory text and then there's a chart of the north polar region and so that chart is detailed showing a total of uh, 1345 stars and 257 delineated and named asterisms including all 28 mansions and the mansions. 20 the 28 mansions are uh, represent the lunar month that's so thorough yeah because you you mentioned uh, tropical year before mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. 
a so that's correlated to the solar year. So moving mm-hmm. around, um, but this is lunar. So there are lots of ways to figure out what time it is. It's time to wrap up this episode. That's great because my brain is done. That is about all my little consciousness can handle for this week, folks. And unfortunately, we barely scratched the surface of the discoveries, technologies, and stories that human societies have developed to help them understand the skies above, because this could be its own whole podcast, really. Comet. As you see fit. as you see fit. Mm -hmm. Well, given Amber's enthusiasm and potential spinoff, we'll probably be back in this corner of things again someday soon. And when we do that, we'll try to focus on North and South America and those concepts of the sky and time. But until then, we will be back in your ears next week with something totally different. Until then, if you miss us, you can find our back episodes on our website, The Dirt Pod. Dot com along with merch and syllabus for educators and a map of our episodes and where they take place in the world and tons more. And you can find us on social media. We're over there on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on the Facebook. And we're right here waiting yeah. for you. Well, <laughs> goodbye, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.